It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. It takes a lot of energy to get along with or even tolerate people we don't see eye to eye with. But we can actually learn and practice skills that help us do that, and there are experts to guide us. Empathy doesn't mean liking somebody else. It means being able to put yourself in their place, which is always a very, very big misunderstanding. Sherry Turkle has made a career out of studying how empathy works. She's learned what builds or depletes our human capacity to understand each other. In this interview from the archives, Turkle tells about turning the lens on herself in her memoir, The Empathy Diaries. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Turkle is a professor and researcher at MIT, and much of her work has focused on technology and empathy. She looks at how tech can get in the way of our ability to empathize, connect, and build real relationships. I interviewed Turkle on stage at the 2021 festival when we were all just emerging from COVID lockdown. The Empathy Diaries had been released a few months earlier, and this was her first in-person book event. Here I am introducing Turkle. I love this book, and I might add that I'm not the only one. The New York Times has featured it in, in Book of the Week and Book of the Month. It's been called Transcendent and an instant classic of the genre. Congratulations, Sherry. Sherry, in your 2011 book, Alone Together, you demonstrated how living behind our screens undermines our social connections, and it really sort of inhibits our emotional lives. Then four years later, you followed up with a book, Reclaiming Conversation, and you proposed a solution to look up from our screens and to look at each other. So all of you should take a clue. Don't be checking your text messages during this talk. I'm watching. <laughs> be nice to me. So your research um, on those two books in particular have helped shape the national discourse around our collective and also our very personal relationships with technology. Um, but before I go to my first question, I thought maybe it would be really nice to just have you read a bit to sort of demonstrate to the audience the different tone that comes about when you write in a memoir. Will you share some with us? Absolutely. It's really, this is my first book talk to, uh, to people who's, uh, who I can see face to face, so it's very exciting. Um, uh, all of my book events... Uh, uh, have been on Zoom, so it really is very thrilling to meet potential readers uh, that I can look at. So I'm really very, it's very moving for me. Uh, and I thought I would just read from the opening of the book um, because the book, uh, it sets up the story of the book, which is a quest. I'm seeking, uh, I'm seeking my father um, and I'm trying to uh, find, uh, through that I'm trying to find my identity. Uh, and it turns out it's both my identity as a person uh, and my identity ultimately as a scholar. And those two tracks uh, interweaving are what makes this book special. It's a book about finding my voice as a scholar. That's the arc of the book. But I, to do that, I take you through my personal story. During the long hours of my grandmother's dying, I begin to read the Brooklyn telephone book. I look up the Charles Zimmermans. 
There are pages of them. I study the entries carefully. It's August 1975, I'm 27. For as long as I can remember, I've been both searching and not searching for Charles Zimmerman, my father, whom I haven't seen since childhood. Now I'm searching. In the back of one of my graduate school notebooks, I begin to copy down Charles Zimmerman addresses and telephone numbers, long lists of them. My mother is dead, and my grandparents, with whom I stay when I'm in New York, have only the Brooklyn telephone book, no Manhattan directory. I know that in Cambridge, Massachusetts, one of my Harvard professors has the Manhattan directory in his office. He once commented that everyone needs to have that directory at hand. At the time, this idea suggested a life of access and sophistication that thrilled me. Now, though, I feel a more practical need. When I get back to school, I ask his secretary if I, if I might borrow his Manhattan book. She says no, but she lets me sit with it in his office where I carefully copy out new Zimmerman candidates. My grandmother dies in December at LaGuardia Airport flying back to Boston after her funeral my plane is delayed. Standing next to a payphone, I study the Queen's directory and copy down the information for all its Charles Zimmermans. It never occurs to me that my father might live in the Bronx or have moved out of New York City altogether. Both during my mother's life and long afterward, I had respected my mother's wish to keep secret what she considered the great shame of her early divorce. I never spoke of my biological father. More than this, from the time I was five and my mother remarried, this was to Milton Turkle, my family lived under a regime of pretend. The rules were that although my legal name was Sherry Zimmerman, I had to say that my name was Sherry Turkle. I met with a private investigator, a former police detective. I no longer remember his name, just his thin black hair and shiny gray suit. In the spring of 1979, I visited his small bare office on the west side furnished with only a well-used lamp, a coat tree, and a steel desk. After Thanksgiving, the detective called. He thinks that he's found my Charles Zimmerman. I remember that as we spoke, I could only take shallow breaths. I was crossing a line. My mother had not wanted me to do this. Perhaps she'd had her reasons. See, you want to read it, don't you? So Sherry, you spent your academic scholarly life 
looking at how we all relate to technology and to one another, what made you, seven books later, turn the lens on yourself? Well, uh, several things. One is my work is not just a job. My work about technology and the self, technology and identity, I mean, it's a calling. I mean, those of you who know me know that I, I don't just care a little, I care a lot. And many of you, your work is not just a job, it's a calling. And I've always wondered, when that's the case, what is the backstory of people whose work is a calling? And I knew my backstory. I know why empathy and the fact that technology undermines empathy is so important to me. It comes out of my life story. It comes out of this story. And I thought, that's a book I've always wanted to read. I've always wanted to read a book where somebody whose work is their calling tells that story. And I just decided to write mine. And uh, it was difficult because it's the story of a search for a father, and it's the story of my mother's keeping me in this regime of secrets, and my having to find out my story and go against her wishes, and uh, you know, I don't want to give away the whole plot, but in finding my father, I, I lose him in a way, and I find my mother because she had been trying to protect me. Um, it's, it was very hard to tell these truths and break out finally of this regime of secrets, but it really was my finding, my, my telling this truth, and, and I, um, it was just a deeply gratifying uh, thing to do, and I, I hope it encourages other scholars to take scholarship into that uh, flesh and blood realm where we uh, make the point that thought and feeling, uh, thinking and feeling are maybe taught on different floors in universities, but really live as one thing you know, in, our, in our lives. And, um, and, and, and that's really, it has an origin story, which was that I was being interviewed after I published my first book, which was a bestseller, which was a 1984 book called uh, The Second Self. I was interviewed by Esquire magazine. I guess I was one of their 40 people under 40 who were changing the nation. And the, the guy who was interviewing me said, so you don't, you don't thank your father in the, in the acknowledgments. What's, what, what's the deal? And I said, oh, well, you can't ask me any personal questions. I'm just asking. I, I can only answer questions about my work. And he said, lady, lady, your whole brand is to bring together thought and feeling. What is going, you know? And I, at that moment, I said, this ends here. I am gonna find this secret life ends here. And I began the process of finding my father and in a sense, going against my mother's wishes and, uh, and bringing, and, and, and living in the sunshine. So that was the beginning of uh, wanting to tell this story. I think sometimes it's hard to look at ourselves, though, and you were so focused 
in your work on society and culture and how we relate. So when did you really sort of make the connection that you were learning empathy, and it's called the Empathy Diaries, Yes. that you were learning to be empathetic as a three-year-old, as a five-year-old. It was, you say in the book it was almost a matter of survival to you. Yes. So when did you realize that as a scholar, as a writer, as an adult, that it really started from you know, when you could talk? Well, mine was a kind of negative example because I was in a situation where I was very loved by people who were asking me to lie every day about the most basic thing, about my name. Uh, and yet I felt deeply loved by these people. And so I had to sort of figure out what would be in the, and we couldn't talk about it. I mean, it was not only, it was the kind of family secret where not only was I being asked to lie, but I was being asked to pretend that the truth didn't exist, that there was a kind of parallel reality. And so I was being asked to imagine what could be going on in the minds of other people that such a thing could happen. And it taught me two things. First of all, to, to, to go into uh, really flights of imaginative psychological projection to try to come up with stories. For the, That's the, a lot for a little kid. It was a lot. It was a lot. I didn't say I was a happy child. I said I was an empathic child. So it, it was a lot. But secondly, I realized that when you see a story, there's always another story next to the story. I learned to say, okay, this is, this is a family that looks like Brooklyn Normal because that was the family that my mother wanted projected. But there's another story, because my name isn't Sherry Bonowitz or Sherry Zimmer or Sherry Turkle. My name is Sherry Zimmerman, and I'm from a completely different marriage that nobody knows about. And every day when I come home from school, I hide my notebooks under lock and key, and I pretend I'm a different person. So there are other stories and other families that are being hidden, and I'm very interested in that. So it gave me a kind of, um, um, from the earliest ages, a kind of sense that if you're an outsider, you can be sensitive to other things that are happening in every situation than the one that's on the surface. So I was basically in sociology school, you know, from a very early age. And I think that it's that distance from the official story um, that, and then how to care for and how to be empathic with people who are putting you through that and what might be uh, motivating them. And I think that as, and I'll be talking about that more this afternoon, as we try to understand in this country the possible motivations and the possible, um, uh, you know, what could people be thinking who are putting our country through a stress test that we can barely understand, I think that those skills and those empathic skills are, 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 are the skills that need to kick in. Because one of the important things about empathy that I, I stress both in the memoir and in my work is that empathy doesn't mean liking somebody else. It means being able to put yourself in their place. 
which is always a very, very big, often misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to like what I was being put through. I had to understand why it was happening. And I think that that ability to put yourself not just in the place, but in the problem of someone else um, was something that I learned from very young. You sort of talk a lot in the book about holding an outsider's perspective. Yes. Do you want to share an anecdote or a story where you felt like an outsider, maybe in childhood or college, and how that sort of honed your... Well, I'll give a great example. Um, I, when I, I dropped out of college, uh, when my, after my mother died, uh, my, uh, I, there's an evil stepfather in the book. My mother, uh, my mother did remarry to Milton Turkle, and he, um, when my mother died, uh, he wanted me to drop out of, uh, I was at Radcliffe, which was the name at the time for the sister school to Harvard, um, and um, he, he wanted me to drop out of school, and he could get me to drop out of school because he didn't file the parents' confidential statement. Uh, which is how you get, you get your scholarship renewed. And without my scholarship, I had to drop out, and I took a job in, in Paris as a cleaning lady. Um, and they called me Le Portugais. Uh, this is a stretch. Uh, I'm Jewish from Brooklyn. Uh, but all, most of the cleaning ladies at the time, the cleaning persons, were Portuguese, and so the generic for cleaning person was Portuguese. And that was an example of sort of being taken out of, of all identity identifiers that had to do with me or anything about who I was and being given this kind of generic. In the book, I talk about a, 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 a um, an anthropological concept called decountrifying, depaisement, which is really a, uh, it's not just about countries, it's about an individual when you're taken out of the familiar and you're put into something radically unfamiliar that lets you see the familiar better. And that experience of being le Portuguese for a year, when I went back to Radcliffe, all of a sudden I could see things at home that I hadn't seen before. Like, why weren't women allowed to use the library at Harvard? Why were there no female professors at Harvard? All of these things had seemed natural to me when I first got there. I was just grateful to be there. But having been le Portuguese for a year, and then going back, having been made a stranger to my own situation, was a technique that I would then learn is what anthropologists do to allow them to see their own country with sharper eyes. And that marginality, I think, which I had from being a baby, I mean, I was, I was sherry something, but I wasn't like all the other children because that had names and fathers and mothers. I mean, you know, I, I was always odd. And I think that strategy, which you can do on you know, you can, it can either come naturally to you, which it came to me, or you can do it on purpose. You can teach yourself how to make yourself a stranger in your own land. And that's very useful, again, very useful now. 
And I think the pandemic um, has been a way in which all Americans have become strangers in our own land and can see our country with fresh eyes. I think we're all going through that and I think that we should uh, exploit in a good way and turn to, um, uh, turn to our advantage the fact that we can see our country with, uh, with, with new eyes. And I do want to get to the pandemic right. a little bit in a minute, but um, I would like to bring us back to another passage in your book. I was really fascinated by the role of memory yes. and how much there's so much vivid detail from your young childhood and recognizing that your mother died when you were in college and your grandparents are obviously long gone. So just curious from a writerly standpoint, sort of how you accessed a lot of those memories. And to help you all, I'm gonna ask Sherry to read a short passage from The Memory Closet, um, which is an actual place of her childhood. Yes. Well, you know, I should say that one of my tricks as a teacher and as a, um, you know, as a researcher, and one of the things I'm kind of known, one of the books I wrote is called Evocative Objects. And one of my, you know, one of my, um, I was gonna say tricks of the trade, but that makes it sound like not really serious enough. Uh, one of my tricks of the trade is I get my students, my friends, lovers, I mean, just people I meet on the street, to, um, to talk to me about objects when they, want to, um, when they want to access memories, when they want to access deep parts of their experience. It's an ethnographer's trick. Um, it was taught to me by Victor Turner. It was taught to me by Mary Douglas. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to pretend that you know, I, I invented this, but I really, uh, bringing to it my training as a psychoanalyst, I really have been able to um, you know, really, develop, uh, really develop it, and I use it on MIT students who are like the least, you know, the group least likely to want to do this. But you know, you'd be surprised, I don't have any objects. And then I say, come to my office. We'll let, let. And then they'll say, you mean like a, you mean like a pink Spalding ball? You mean like a Lego? And, you know, and an hour later, you know, we're just deep into the Lego structures, the Spalding balls, all their friends, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think what we're going to see me. here is you learned it yes, at I learned three years it, old. I learned it at three years old. Okay. All of my special objects had their place in the memory closet at my grandparents' apartment. So my grandparents had a closet above the kitchen table of their home. Um, and of course, I'm looking, I'm fascinated by this closet because I'm looking for some trace of my father, who, when I hardly find anything. Um, there, in a little leather box, I found a silver ring and matching bracelet from Thailand, a gift to my mother from, my, her, from her uncle Samuel Berman, my grandmother's brother, the man I was named after. He was my mother's idol when she was growing up. She told me he was handsome and had gone to pharmacy school at Columbia University. I imagined my mother wearing her Uncle Sam's jewelry when she went out on a date as a single woman. My mother didn't talk about Charles Zimmerman, but she often told me how proud I should be to be named after Samuel Berman, the Ivy League scholar. I learned to push the kitchen table under the memory closet and then stand on the table to reach my treasures. I worked methodically taking down and examining every book, every box. I was allowed to look at anything in the closet from as early as I can remember, certainly from when I was three. 
but I was always to put it back. The closet seemed to me of infinite dimensions, infinite depth. I can't remember a time when I didn't find something new in that closet. Each object I found, every key ring or postcard, received the care and attention that my favorite heroine, the girl detective Nancy Drew, gave the clues she stumbled upon. In the closet, every high school notebook with its marginalia, some of it my mother, some of it my aunt's, meant a possible new understanding of my history. Every photo of my mother on a date or a dance became the clue to my possible identity. When I was very young, sometimes one of the adults in the family would come into the kitchen to watch me at work. When I began looking in the closet, I didn't know what I was looking for. I think they did. I was looking for the missing person. I was looking for a trace of my father. But they'd been there before and had gotten rid of any bits and pieces he might have left. An address book, a business card, a random note. There were many torn photographs. Once I found a photograph with the body still there and the face cut out. I never asked whose face it was. I knew, and I knew enough never to mention the photograph for fear it might disappear. It was precious to me. The image had been attacked, but it contained so many missing puzzle pieces. What his hands looked like, that he wore lace-up shoes, that his pants were tweed. Thank you. I just got a cue that we need to go to questions soon, so I do want to bring it back to your life's work and your research before and talk a little bit about the pandemic and then we'll open it up to questions. So you've written, quote, to fix our crisis of intimacy and privacy, of empathy and human connection, we don't need more technology, we need one another. So then the pandemic struck and we've all been sort of holed up for the last 14 or 15 months and more dependent on technology arguably than any other time. It was sort of a lifeline for many of us. How are you thinking about all of this now? And, and where did you spend the pandemic? I spent the pandemic on Thoreau's beach. Thoreau took uh, a walk uh, on Cape Cod. And uh, there's a beat from Sandwich to the tip of Provincetown. And I have a writer's retreat on that beach. And I spent the, the entire pandemic, like until yesterday, uh, until two days ago, uh, on um, that beach um, and uh, reading, writing this book and uh, reading Thoreau, um, who was very inspirational to me because you know Thoreau didn't want to be alone. He wanted to live deliberately. Thoreau is very badly misunderstood. He did not want to be alone. He wanted to live deliberately. And that is my... Uh, way of thinking about technology as I come out of this time of zooming and thinking about technology and living on that beach and uh, thinking about you know where do we go from here is that we we need technology we're immersed in technology I'm for technology deliberately and deliberately means you begin with what are our human goals and how can technology help us get there? 
And I think that that is, you know, that is what my career of thinking about technology and people has led me to. Not to any anti-technology, I've always said I'm not anti-technology, I'm pro-conversation. Uh, how can we use technology deliberately to further our human uh, goals and values? Uh, not like what new app has just come up and what's gonna do to us and what, how can we respond and what, you know, what? No, what do we need, want, and what new technologies are on the horizon that can help us achieve that and actualize in that way? And if there's a technology that looks like it could undermine that, well, that technology you know, should not be the one that we're like promoting first. We don't need to promote that. We need to look at it and say, whoa, that, you know, that technology is, you know, is a little bit poses a, a threat to us. We need to soft pedal that. We need to, it kind of comes with a warning label. So Sherry, do you- So that's how, I mean, that's my basic, you know, I'm pro, I'm pro tech, I'm not, I'm pro technologies that, um, somebody said, said to me, you know, uh, are you anti-app, you know, or are you, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm pro-empathy and we are the empathy app. People are the empathy app. I think it's the most important line in my book. Do you think that we're, after all of this isolation, do you think we, those of us who don't necessarily think about technology as much as you do, uh -huh. do you think we're better equipped to be deliberate about it? Do you think we'll maybe take a little bit less for granted? Or do you worry that we're so far down the rabbit hole, it's gonna be even harder to, to get people to pay attention and, and look up you know, I am really of two minds, and being of two minds means that two, several things are going on at the same time, because that's how human life is. On the one hand, people crave the full embrace of the human. I have never, I mean, I hardly know, I know very few people here. People are walking up to me and hugging me. I mean, who really, I promise you, before this had happened would have, given me a high five, a handshake, would have said nice to see you again. I mean, I think we just are so happy to be alive and grateful. And I'm hugging everyone. I mean, I'm just so happy to be alive and grateful. So, I mean, I think that we really crave the full embrace of the human. I feel an openness and I feel people have an openness and a gratitude, just a gratitude and a sense of a close call and, a, and just we see the difference of what it's like to not be looking at a to pretend to make eye contact by looking at a green light and to just really make eye contact by looking at an eye. I mean, I think that we are just so happy to be together. That's one thing. On the other hand, in all of my work, and this over decades, there is a sad pattern that technology goes from being better than nothing to people saying it's better. And one of the saddest uh, examples of this is hundreds and hundreds of interviews I did about uh, robot pets. My, the, the IBO is better than nothing. My grandmother is allergic to dogs. The IBO is really better than a dog because uh, it can never die and, and my grandmother's old and a, and a loss would be terrible for her. So the IBO or any kind of robot pet is really better than anything that life could ever offer because 
it'll never die, and who needs stuff that dies? And that movement from technology is better than nothing to technology is better. Has, you see that in one after another, after another, after another technology. You know, an AI judge is better than nothing because it can just process so many things, it can process so many applications, and it's just better because it's fairer, it won't be biased. And you, you just see it, in, and I think that we are still vulnerable to being wowed when technology starts off better than nothing and then just kind of sells us on it's being better. So I think we need vigilance. We need to have a reinforced sense of our human values and to keep them in mind and in heart as we come out of this very stressed period. Uh, in education, I think, uh, I, I know we work short on time, so I'll make this one final point. I think that in education, we're oddly enough at an advantage because I think that as parents go back to um, school now and some fancy software company says, we can give you software that will track your child and do all sorts of fancy things with them, parents are much more likely to say, now, would you please give my child a person could you just give my child a person? You know, whereas, whereas two years ago, there was a lot more vulnerability about some fancy AI program that would, you know, be able to measure eye movements and track everything and give your child exactly the thing that was most suited to your child in every single solitary way. Now I think parents, you know, I think a person first would be a good idea, you know? So I think that, um, we're, we're just at a very delicate point when uh, reinforcing our sense of what our priorities are as human beings uh, as we confront technology. We're, we're being pulled in different directions. We, uh, we're very stressed. We're very exhausted politically. We need to be very vigilant. And in terms of our technology, we need to be very vigilant. So it's an interesting time. But I'm optimistic. I'm very optimistic that we are better, um, that we, we uh, are more able in Thoreau's terms to act deliberately. Good. Well, let's get you the in-person book talk experience and open it up for a couple of questions. And I don't think... Um, you just need to repeat the question. Okay, so I'll repeat the question because we are recording this, but we don't have a mic going around. So I think this gentleman in the back... This is a great question. How do you sustain empathy and grow courage? And a very important word was used, which is hypervigilance. What you don't want to do is sustain empathy through hypervigilance and sort of keeping on your toes. You want to sustain empathy through relationship and attachment. Because relationship and attachment and community, square dancing, belonging to a gardening group, building a community center together, are fun. So what you need, and this has been sort of like, I feel as I, since I've come here, I've been in 10 conversations about this, and each of them been in, really? You know, you need to sustain empathy by getting people into real attachments and real relationships where the process of putting yourself in somebody else's place and someone else's problem 
doesn't feel stressful and straining and can be done over the long haul, can be done as a commitment, not just as a, a kind of Saturday afternoon exercise or a, you know, like a workshop you go to or a, or a, um, or a march you're on or a, you know, or a kind of a one-off. So I think that the, the long-term answer is attachment. I mean, who do we really feel empathic towards? We feel empathic towards people we're attached to. So getting people into groups of attachment and commitment um, is where it doesn't feel like work. It feels like human attachment and connection, which human beings don't experience that as work. Human beings experience, experience that as a kind of, a certain kind of relaxation actually is the answer to that. Right here, please. This, you know, this is a big, um, this is a big... Um, Should we tell the audience? Oh, yes. The question being, the, the, the issue is compassion versus empathy. And this, you know, and is compassion a more sustainable emotion because it's less exhausting, um, because you're less strung out uh, trying to put yourself in. And this turns out to be a giant... Um, um, what would I call it? Um, argument in the literature, a kind of there's a, there's a there's actually there's books against empathy. There's a there's a whole library shelf of books. Some of them called against empathy, actually, <laughs> um, and then against empathy too, and more against empathy. Um, so I, I, on the way over, I, I was saying, oh yeah, I'm giving two talks today. One is called about empathy, and one is called uh, uh, democracy and empathy, and uh, a lovely friend said, oh, well, all the un, un, taking all the unpopular subjects. And it's kind, of, it's kind of right. The difference is, is that if you're you know, trained as a clinician, there's a way to do empathy where it doesn't exhaust you. And I think we all need a little training to do empathy where it's a human capacity that doesn't exhaust us. In the same way that this decountrifying, this ability to be in your culture. So you could say you're in your culture, you see poverty, and you're so exhausted, you just get depressed and you pull up the, the covers and you just literally can't leave. You know, you do, you're, 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 you're so ashamed that you have a nice duvet to pull up over your head, you can barely leave your room. No, there has to be a way to be in your culture, but remove yourself enough from it that you can tolerate that that's your culture, but you also have some distance on it so that you can act. And that's what we have to do with empathy as well. So, question five minutes, okay. So, um, so I think the trick, the trick is to be able to have empathic attachments where we don't feel that exhaustion. And I think that this is kind of the, 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 the work of being, you know, emotional work that stands to be done. There are people who know how to do it. We can teach each other to do it. I'm looking at people in this room who I believe know how to do it, and I think it can be taught. And I think it's necessary because if you just go to compassion, this is my trouble with artificial, um, uh, what's it called? The artificial. 
No, not intelligence, the other one, the artificial, um, where you put on the goggles oh, and you, yeah, artificial, you know, virtual reality is a way to, have, to not have to be empathic, but just can be compassionate. You see, you know, you visit, um, it's called artificial something else. It's, um, you, you know, um, enhanced, you know, kind of enhanced reality. And it's even called empathy machines. They call what they're doing empathy machines. No, it's too cold. It's not real. You're not visiting real people. You're not. You're not attaching. You're not attaching to real people. You're. You're a. You're. You're a. You're. 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 You're a kind of uh, technological tourist with distance between you. You're not forming relationships. I'm saying that we need to enhance our capacity to form real relationships, and that's where I, I believe the you know the the, the good is going to come. We can't just be an avatar. Yeah. In augmented reality? That's what I was looking for. I was looking for augmented reality. As a, there's, a, there's a large and very com, uh, compelling literature on augmented reality as empathy machines. And it's very brilliant, and I, and I want to be respectful of it, but I think that the key to where I want to see us going is um, forming relationships and, and actually knowing people. Sherry Turkle, congratulations on the Empathy Diaries, and thank you for joining us again at Aspen Ideas. Sherry Turkle is the Abby Rockefeller Maze Professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology and MIT's program in Science, Technology, and Society. She's also the founding director of MIT's Initiative on Technology and Self. She researches how technology can undermine our capacities for empathy and solitude, and how to design for human vulnerability. Turkle's latest book is The Empathy Diaries, a memoir. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of the Aspen Ideas Festival. Today's show was produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. Thanks for listening.